Burnout Lukey podcast is a day late. It's a holiday. I think it's President's Day, isn't it? President's Day. It is President's Day. So you can go buy a car. When I was a kid, President's Day was a big car um, day. We already got two people in the chat. That is amazing. They were waiting on us because I had a secret phone call that won't be discussed in our pre-show meeting. We deeply apologize for that, Dakota. You were live at the theater, not the garden, but the theater. I know my slang. Um, what was the slice of pizza that you took the legend Jack Kelly to? We went to one of my childhood spots, which was New York Pizza Suprema, which is right outside the garden on 31st and 8th. And it's kind of the go-to post-garden slice. So, you know what I mean? It's sort of like that spot. So, fortunately, we had the, le the legend Jack Kelly on site with us this weekend, which was incredible. Um, so, I was able to uh, show, him, show him a little slice of home, you know? Yeah, so um, that's beautiful, bro. So talk me through the beats of this fight week that you were on site for ITR Boxing covering the fight. What would you say were some beats and then of the main event or maybe even undercard attractions that you saw just from being on site as a journalist? And uh, I don't know, maybe some things that people missed and then let's get into the fight. Well, fight week was 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 really interesting i felt like um i felt like you you actually could see in person sort of the mutual respect between shock and nova even though they would take their little jabs here and there you definitely could tell that they both knew that they were in a real fight um and ultimately that wound up being pretty true um i thought that uh you know we'll get into this more but i thought that when I saw Guido Vianello at the weigh-in, that he looked very sure of himself. Um, so I didn't know what to expect from the performance itself, but he just looked very sure of himself in, in those moments leading up to the fight. So, um, you know, and, and I got to talk to yeah, Sean. Wait, 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 wait. You don't get to do that, bro. I was I was going through the motions, you know, for the, there's some people who are truck drivers that listen to this show. There are people that have union jobs, uh, local 22s. What do you mean when you say sure of yourself? Talk the person that doesn't know anything. That's a sicko that watches a weigh in. What does Dakota see when he says someone sure of themselves? Let's educate the listener of this great program so they can actually enjoy boxing more. Let's not tear the sport down. Let's build it up. Teach them what you saw in Guido. So when you're at a weigh-in, right, and you know this as well as anybody, a lot of times when you get to the weigh-in, when the fighters get to the weigh-in, they're sort of, for some of them, especially not heavyweight specifically, but there's a feeling that they've sort of maxed out physically, right? Because you've been cutting weight, you've been training for this insane experience. So it's not that fighters may not look confident but they they just might physically not be at their best and so you can see that and how they're holding themselves and how they're moving like literally how they're moving with guido he just looked so relaxed he looked like he was ready per to perform right in that moment so when i see a fighter that's ready to perform at a weigh-in that's a scary fighter to me because a, a weigh-in can be a moment where it's like, oh, thank fucking God, now I can finally, you know, treat my body right. And 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 Guido just he just looked like he was like, yo, I'm that guy. He just had that he had that feeling to him. And and the performance really showed it, right? Like we both sort of speculated that this could be a difficult fight for him, and it was the best performance that I've ever seen from him. Well, I think that another thing that I look at, too, is this is something I've been struggling with, right? And I'll, I, you asked me to bring this up earlier. I interpret it as pro box acquired boxing scene. So within one day, my very small platform now is a piece of a very big platform. I'm not a critical piece of boxing scene by any means. That's the leadership of like Tris Dixon and these acclaimed writers. But now my words get out to a lot more people overnight. It's like being an ant and then all of a sudden transforming into an elephant. With that power, how do you not tear down the sport? With that power, how do you uplift the sport? With that power, how do you build new fans? I do think part of the problem we've encountered with boxing is too many people that covered the sport were jaded and bitter. 
and started to talk in tropes that carried over to the fans. They, I grew up skateboarding and one of my mentors was a jaded and bitter 26 year old. And I grew, my teenage years were being jaded and bitter because it rubbed off on me. So I know this is kind of inside journalism, inside the thing, but one of my goals over the weekend and my girlfriend hasn't even gotten a, a weekend with me because of just everything that's going on. You've heard a little bit about it, but I swear I'm going to get back to Guido is how can we uplift this sport we love? Because if you have a platform, you really should build the sport as opposed to criticize. When we get into the marquee bout of this weekend, we could criticize it. But how do we look at it objectively for the where it sits in the sport? And I think with Guido, a lot of people could look at this fight. This is the tie-in, right? So for those wondering, why did I say that? This is the tie-in right here. For those wondering, like what? Oh, Guido did this. Don't flip-flop. This was a good fight on paper. Yes, his opponent was a little bit smaller, but he had, he had shown that he was a serviceable, tough heavyweight of his era. And Guido had a fantastic performance coming off arguably one of his worst performances ever, if not his worst performance as a pro. And to me, that speaks volumes. That speaks volumes of he got in the gym and got back on his job and that's kind of what I tune into boxing on these undercards to see is someone take the ball. I think another example of that is Tiger Johnson. You'd been yeah. not the biggest fan of some of his performances. He comes out and start starches a guy. And these are the type of reasons why Dakota and Lukey watch deep undercards is to see someone go from an uneventful, boring fight to knocking someone out in 60 seconds. This is what we look for is that, that overnight transition where it's like every single day that we watched the fight led to this moment. Yeah. And they both sort of had that moment, right? Like we're wondering where the progression is sort of leading to. And I think this was a moment for both of them where they kind of just put all the pieces together because there's no doubt with both of them, right? Like we've seen the individual pieces, we've seen the talent, we've seen the, the abilities, and at times we just haven't seen them all put together in one performance. And I felt like they both sort of had like this arriving moment as very serious fighters, very serious prospects. I mean, I'd call them contenders, to be honest, because I think that when you're an Olympian, yes, we give out prospect to Olympians. But really, I think if it was a fair world, Olympians should never be prospects like they should just kind of enter into contenders, right? Because shouldn't the Olympic process like take away the prospect status? Like, I think that you, your Olympic run was your prospect run. And then you should kind of hit the ground moving as a contender um, in a fair world, but we don't live in a fair world and we live in the world that we live in. And I think that both fighters had some major doubts leading into these fights and uh they they answered them dakota what else did you see do we do we want to do a a carrington rant do you want to do the main event what do you what do you want to speak to next well let's start with shushu because i i was just kind of impressed with him as an individual going through fight week he was just somebody that was very available to us as media he was you know shaking hands with people um, and he just he looked super confident. That's the other thing, too, was Torres looked super confident coming into this fight. He looked like a guy who he had this look on his face all week, like, I know something you don't know. And I think even though it was a short fight, right, like he really showed up to win and was given Shushu the kind of resistance that we haven't necessarily seen him have. And his response to that was to lay out a very tough game opponent kind of suddenly. And again, like Tiger, like Guido, those are more answered questions. Like if Shushu gets into a position where a guy is actually there throwing back and it's it, it, there's moments where it's uncomfortable, how does he respond? And ultimately how he responded was taking it up that other notch and, and getting a, a fantastic knockout. Yeah, I mean, to me... Bruce has always um, he's always seemed like a superstar in the amateurs. He had the nickname, the moniker. He even had posters when he was an amateur fighter. 
And to me, it felt like no diss on my guy, Shock Foster, but it felt like the inevitable main event fighter um, carrying himself as a future main event fighter in a historical sense where we're going to look back and go, oh, wow, he carried himself like he was the main event, like he's inevitably. Because to me, it seems like it's going to be Bruce and Xander um, doing stuff over the next couple of years in New York. Definitely. Definitely. And I think just that Brownsville lineage, the number of uh, incredible fighters that have come out of Brownsville, Brooklyn, he sort of has that um, that lineage behind him. You know, like there's certain communities, like when you say you're a fighter from that area, that people are like, all right, yeah, Philadelphia would be one of those places. You know, you know how it is. There's certain cities where it's just like known for their fighters. Let's take it um, a step further, Dakota. And I just rudely interrupted you, but I don't care. So I'm sorry, Dakota. Um, <laughs> it, Mike Tyson is one of the coolest fighters ever. And to come from the same area as Tyson and to give a speech at the end, which was pretty clearly a tribute to Mike Tyson. Um, I think that gets people excited because now we're in an era where people probably never saw Mike Tyson fight ever. They were too young, but he still remains one of the coolest fighters ever. And I think anything that taps into Mike Tyson in an authentic way from that same lineage I think there's a level of excitement because what would you say? He's like one of the 10 most relevant fighters ever. Like not even boxers, like fighters. Yeah. I, it won, and definitely one of the most popular and name recognition and culturally significant. I think, you know, just to add to, to that, you know, like there was other Brownsville fighters that, you know, like Shannon Briggs was there. And I, I have to assume that on some level he was there to support Shushu as a, as a Brownsville fighter. And I think that like, so Shushu kind of checks the boxes for me of a superstar in the sense he's having those performances Berlanga and Xander had to kind of move up, move up the card quicker than other people. It's like, you have to get the knockouts. You have to get the fans excited very charismatic, gives interesting interviews, makes time for the media so he gets stories written about himself. And then there's like this whole historical boxing nerd aspect to him, coming out in the Mike Tyson garb, paying tribute to the legends before him, the legends before him from his area coming out to support him. He has the respect of those that came before him. It really feels like no matter how his career plays out, he's going to be a historic and significant New York fighter. And to me, I prophesized this about 2021. I thought he was the next New York fighter. I truly think we haven't had a New York fighter since um, Paulie Malignaggi that's really captured the city like that. Who who can you think between Paulie and Bruce? Well, if we're talking about who captured the city, I think that there is no denying that the kind of audiences that Edgar Berlanga has brought to the theater at the garden are some of the um, most emphatic audience. Obviously you get that New Yorkian lineage, right? It's the same kind of deal as the, as a Brownsville lineage. New York has certain um, boxing lineages. I would say the New Yorkian one is our most significant. Um, and I think Amanda Serrano has always brought that as well. Um, but I think between, uh, you know, I, I can't think of a moment in New York boxing um, that was as significant as, you know, like a Kodo fight or, you know, a Malinaji fight or even a Zab Judah fight. So we are still sort of seeking, I think, that person. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I said Pauly, I meant the world champion critically acclaimed fighter, right? So a guy who who has the accolades because Berlanga, what made Berlanga to me was a perfect storm. First round knockout, 16 straight. There's a streak. So it's like Bill Goldberg and people, you put the clock and he get through. Then you got fat Joe walking him out. So you got like a cool rapper that most people are familiar with walking out this unknown guy where you're like, well, that's different. He's yeah, basically he's conducting himself like a superstar and he's giving you a superstar performance. New York fighter who's fighting like Mike Tyson um, 
And then I think what also helped Berlanga in that instance was a lot of people were sitting on their butts watching TV because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah. Berlanga's knockouts came during a time when a lot of people were shelter in place and had nothing to do. And that was when his run happened. And I think that that was a big part of what captured people's attention is, hey, who's this Puerto Rican boxer who's knocking people out all the time? Oh, it's Edgar Berlanga. I think that that was the magic equation. And in the modern era, like that's how you can catch fire as opposed to, I, I mean, like 10, 12 years ago when Paulie did that documentary about, was it fighting Amir Khan? And it was the buildup. And that really kind of brought Pauly to that level. But it was like Pauly was a great fighter before he fought for a world title, but it was a world title shot. And it was the courage he showed fighting through a broken jaw and all these moments that I think endeared him. And then his personality of just saying whatever he wanted. He was an old school New Yorker. I think everyone enjoys Pauly for being Pauly. I'm kind of waiting for that guy. Like there's a level. You're waiting for a fighter that connects as on a personal level with the fans well i think berlanga does connect with a personal level but i'm saying like i'm waiting for the new york fighter who goes into a championship moment and embodies the city of new york like the city of new york says this is our guy like i think jalen brunson and the knicks have connected that way where it's like okay new york says this is the guy we want there you wanted carmelo to be the guy they had that great knicks team with patrick ewing and john starks where you were born. They wanted that, Marbury to be the guy. You want it, but you get what I'm saying? Like, there's always, like, New York's a weird city where there's always, they want the guy. You want Carmelo to be guy. You want Mar Marbury to be the guy. But really, the guy is the guy that emerges. It's like a guy from Harlem who, like, shouldn't make it, but then he becomes the guy that runs the whole city. And that's the most New York story. And every now and then, those guys pop up. And when they pop up, I feel like New York as a whole goes, oh, that's one of ours. And it's just different. And the energy is different. And I mean, I think the last one, even though it wasn't from New York to me, now that I think about it, was Cotto. Because he captured all of the New York, New York Ricans, however you say it. It just became something that was larger, larger than life. It was like, if you don't go this, you're not cool. Though, And those were the instances that you know i was able to witness coming up in boxing that really brought me to it in like a real meaningful way was seeing the level of excitement around the miguel cotto fight and particularly when he fought paulie where you had both the new york fans and you had new york, the new york italian fans and it was just this you know it is a, a unique energy that we kind of bring to boxing when we have guys that we're excited about yeah i mean it's it's exciting so any thoughts on Cortez? Dude, he was really impressive. Also, there, this was a night of like really great performances on the under, like individual performances on this undercard. I, again, Chevalier, when I talked about guys that looked confident and comfortable, he was another one of them that I felt like looked like he was ready for that moment. I, and to be brutally honest, I thought Cortez looked a little more weight drained, but on the night, man, he really just mug them you know it was basically a mug in that first round they kind of felt each other out and then cortez just dominated the fight physically i i can't recall seeing him dominate a fight physically to that extent you know what i mean just looking that powerful that strong and i it was a, it was a great performance man i you know he's a guy that i think is ready to be in the mix yeah i mean that's uh that's something that is something. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just like he's a, he's a he should be fighting for the WBO vacant super featherweight title. We all kind of assume we should never assume because that's how you make a up out of yourself. But um, in a perfect world, I believe Albert Bell fights this weekend. Though the stylistic matchup would be weird, I think Albert Bell versus Andreas Cortez for the vacant WBO super featherweight title would be a legitimate world title shot. We know Albert's good. We know Andreas is good. Why Why is it vacant? Well, Emmanuel Navarrete has not fully vacated, but the belief is that he's going to fight Dennis Baranchek for the WBO lightweight world title. And then we have to see if there's going to be an interim title or if there would be a vacant title. 
Because I feel like once guys, especially Navarrete, who's had weight issues in the past, I just don't see a guy who just is at super featherweight going up to lightweight and going, ah, man, I want to go back down five more pounds. I just feel like once he leaves divisions, we've never seen Navarrete go back down in division. So when he went from 22 to 26, he never considered 22 again. When he went from 26 to 30, he never went back to 26. Now he's going 30 to 35. If he wins that, he's probably a Hall of Famer, four-division world champion. Like, to me, that's pretty good resume. But I just – I don't see Navarrete – and I could be wrong. This is just my theorizing of it. Um, But that's just my belief. Yeah, and I don't see him having like a – like a mid-career shift the way like Nonito Donaire did where it was like, you know, he was dropping back down in weight and he started approaching training a little more focused down the back half of his career, which enabled him to have some really exciting performances. I just don't think that that's going to be – I feel like Navarrete is at a point where he is what he is. Like everyone keeps waiting for him to get on a diet plan or something, and I just don't – I don't think that's who he is. I think we have to accept him for the exciting, fun – flawed fighter he is look he um people people often tell us who they are and we just should just believe them like people are like oh man one day this guy's gonna put a jab together and he's gonna stay on the outside one day he's not gonna have look i think he could he could fight at 175 and there might be a weight issue it's just who he is like i don't think there's a number on a scale that exists where he might not be a little cautious about the weight he weighs in at. I think it's, it's a mentality thing. It's not a scale thing. I think whatever the weight is, he knows that he can have a little bit more freedom each and every weight class. And that's just a personality thing. We've heard it from him where he feels like he can fluctuate between camps. Some camps he's eating junk food, some camps he's on Jenny Craig. It's just who he is. And I mean, he's going to fight a really hard Ukrainian fighter for the vacant lightweight title who's an Olympian who fought with Usyk and all these guys, and everyone's going to assume he's going to walk through this guy. That is not just a gimme fight, by the way. So if he loses that, we could be in Ray Vargas land where the guy loses. I also also wonder at what point, you know, at 22, 26, 30, he could really, like, beat guys up because he was bigger, and I just think he's going to – hit a certain ceiling where his power and his physicality just doesn't affect guys in the same way. I don't know if that'll happen at lightweight, but there's, there's some guys at lightweight that have some tools and some skill sets that he hasn't had to be in with yet. Yeah, no, I hear you, bro. I hear you, bro. And, um, so basically we, we went on a Navarrete thing, which kind of sadly for Andreas Cortez tells his level of fame where we're going to go on a rant about the famous world champion instead of Andreas. Well, but, but we went down that because I, I, I wasn't sure. I asked you why it was vacant, and I I guess what you're saying is that that's mostly speculative. It's speculative, he... but wouldn't you assume that Cortez, I, I could see getting moved into a number two position because this was a ranking. I believe Albert Bell's the number one. He's fighting this weekend. They're oddly fighting within a week of each other, so they can be booked for a fight sometime soon. And it's honestly a real fight. It's it's yep. a stylistic matchup. It's it would crown a legitimate world champion. And it, as much as people would poo-poo it, it would be an interesting, fascinating fight. That being said, there's no press release. There's nothing official. I just think that that's something that we could possibly see in the near future. And I would love to see that. I think that's a great fight. Okay. Um. Maybe maybe I'll talk to Al. Maybe we'll try to get Albert on the show next week to see if that's actually truth or if that's speculative. Drag Albert on here. Okay, I'm gonna let you take the reins for about 1.5 minutes, and I'm gonna have you talk us through what you thought of Oshaki Foster versus Abraham Nova. Give us your complete from the press conference, weigh in all the way to the fight. What were your observations, takeaways, and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, m- let's just start with the fight, right? Because I think that it was a it was a close fight, um, particularly through the first eight or nine rounds. Um, and I think that as the fight wore on, I was like kind of waiting for one guy to separate himself in some way, you know, because it felt like most of the rounds Nova was 
out hustling shock for long periods of time, but not necessarily landing um, the cleanest shots. And then the handful of times that shock would let his hands go, they would land pretty clean. But in that first eight, nine rounds, it, they weren't affecting Nova. It didn't seem like. Um, the other thing, you know, Nova, I think, approached the fight from the stance of a boxer a little bit more um, than was expected, at least than I expected. I kind of expected him to try to make it a rough physical fight, but he did a good job for a long period of the fight of, you know, keeping the fight from a distance and trying to just out hustle shock. Then there was a point somewhere in there. I can't remember the round, but they were in a clinch and it looked like um, Foster did something to his elbow or Nova had been grabbing his arm in the clinch. It did something to his elbow. And so I felt like his activity kind of dropped for a few rounds after that, as he started to, you know, kind of rethink, like, how am I going to approach this fight if if, I, if I'm if i one-handed or if I have to be a little bit more selective? Um, and then by the time we got into the 10th round, it just looked like the fight had finally started to weigh on Nova, and it hadn't weighed on Shock in that same way, and he really separated himself down the stretch, getting that knockdown. Um, was obviously the difference maker on the cards from keeping it a draw, but I, I thought that he won the fight relatively clean. Yeah. I mean, I think that what I, what I'm starting to see with um, Foster is you're looking at someone that will find a way to win. This to me felt like it was an off night for him. He didn't have everything in his bag that he probably wanted. And he still figured out how to make an adjustment. He's extremely calm and one thing that impressed me was his ability to throw nice short shots inside the clinch when when you try to hold him or if you try to rest he's still able to get off shots and turn and he's very annoying in that way i also want to credit mark deluca our guy um it seemed like nova may have been hurt in the 11th round and what whether hook or by crook the water bottle spilled which is a veteran move took his sweet time cleaning it up bought a little bit of time. And I think that that like strategically, what more can you ask from a coach? I, did you see that live? Did you feel Nova was rocked in that 11th? I, I thought he was a little bit, but I didn't get the impression that he was going to have a hard time getting through the 12th. I just saw that. All right. As we're coming down the backstretch here, the separation is going to be that shock is still fresh and Nova is starting to wear down. You know what I mean? I just felt like that was sort of the separating point of the fight. That but ultimately, it wound out that it wound up that Nova had a great poker face and was hurt, and and ultimately, Shock was able to put him down. I mean, Nova to me, I think the story of the fight for him was he came into this fight with something to prove. He wanted to prove he's a world class fighter. He wanted to prove that he's a great fighter, and he did. You know, the, the stench. I think mission accomplished on that. I mean, I get that it hurts that you didn't win the world title, but I think that he now fits into the Hobson Conceição route of fighter where it's like extremely good fighter who, you know, doesn't matter that they've lost a few times. No, because they've beaten enough guys that we say are credible and good fighters that we know that they are credible and good. Um, it's the weird fight where both guys probably won more than they lost, even though one guy got the decision, the split decision, I think was kind of odd. I didn't see how John McKay, I really wish they'd take judges into the ring and make them have to account for scorecards that don't make sense. Like, I wish we could shame judges because it's like, you never, there's no accountability to these judges ever. So, um, I don't know, bro. Um, it's just whatever. It's just whatever. Well, and, I, and I can't see a world that, because that scorecard is 7-5 for Nova. I, I just can't. As great of a fight as it was and as competitive as it was, like there's, I can't see giving Nova more than five. You know what I mean? I mean, you'd have to give him the first four rounds, and then you'd have to give him – the swing rounds in the middle, which I thought, I mean, I think that one, the thing that that tells me is I think Nova out through. Um, well, he did. Uh, and by the way, on press row, like everybody kept 
looking at each other and being like, that was a weird round to score. And there was about four of those in the fight. So I get a little less, and you know me, man, I'm always on these judges, bro, but I get a little less critical when there's that many rounds where everyone's going. I don't know. Well, that's how I was in Reno. Remember I told you, and you said a couple of those fights, like on, on TV, you're like, oh, it's clear. But then like you, you're there live and you see one guy throwing a lot, but nothing's landing. And then you see the other guys landing, but he's not throwing a ton. You start to question like, who's really winning this? Is it, and then, like, not to bury the lead, we'll get into this in a second, but JoJo lost a fight basically because he didn't throw enough. He didn't, the guy didn't land cleaner punches, but because the volume wasn't there, he didn't get rewarded the fight. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, what made those rounds difficult to score was that it seemed for most of the fight, you know, he, he, he did land some shots, but a lot of Nova's strategy was just staying busy. Right. Sometimes that's what you got to do with a guy like Shock, who's not going to, there's no gimmies in his defense. You got to just stay busy. And he did a great job of that. Um, and I think that there was long enough stretches of him just sort of hustling and, and Shock looking for his openings and waiting that it just, it never, it, until the 10th round, it didn't feel like anybody had taken command of the fight and said, this is my night. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, bro. That's a, that's a solid take. Um, let's go over. What did you think of JoJo losing another fight to Jesus Ricky Perez? It looked almost like a doppelganger performance of the Mercito Hesta fight. I think JoJo has a good reason to be annoyed because there's probably a world where he won the fight. But the problem was the optics of the fight. Um, his coordination looked a little bit slower. His reaction time looked a little slower. He was getting hit by a guy that I think honestly isn't as talented as him. And then just a... a immature foul if we're being honest to throw him through the ropes and get deducted one point in the middle rounds i think this is just kind of signaling that diaz is having trouble separating himself from guys that aren't really at the top of the sport and that's just a troubling trend because mercito hesta is a solid top 15 top 20 guy but he's not really right now in my opinion this could be wrong not a top 10 guy i don't know if jesus ricky perez is a top 10 guy outside of this win, which might catapult him. And Diaz is having trouble um, differentiating who's the more talented, who's getting the better of these exchanges with guys that we don't view. It's rather alarming, in my opinion, because he used to be able to separate from these guys quite clearly. I think the the thing for me about this performance specifically that was different was I thought his legs looked worse. Like, even against Mercito, I thought he had that 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 firm base Still, I felt like when he threw his punches, they looked the same as the guy who was throwing punches at Devin Haney and Gary Russell. And, uh, you know, there was elements of like, yeah, he did kind of just get out hustled. It wasn't his night that night. He could have done a little more, but he still looked like the same guy. I just felt like from the first round on this one, I, I thought his legs looked a little off. I thought he looked less sure of himself. And even when he was throwing, it did. It didn't have the same zip that I felt like it used to. So I, I feel like this was the first fight where I thought his skills looked like they were deteriorating. And it's sad to me. Yeah. JoJo is one of my favorite fighters from the 2012 Olympian. I thought he had the potential to be a Hall of Famer. I thought he had the potential to be in these great fights, exciting fights with Haney and um, – with Ryan Garcia. I thought he was going to fight all the guys of the era, Shakur, Tank, etc. And now it's looking as though he's going to be the guy that's going to test prospects. And there's an alarming trend I'm seeing with JoJo that I don't like, where there's, I get that he feels that he won the fight. And I think, honestly, in this fight, there's a world where he did win the fight because he landed the cleaner punches. He just didn't throw as much. If you look at the connect percentage, I want to say he landed like 44% of his connect yep. rate. Which, in my opinion, that probably means you won the fight if the other guy landed 18% but just threw more. But what's concerning to me is that he's not saying, like, this guy's got a full-time job, hardworking fighter, but typically there used to be when JoJo would fight this level of guy, okay, there's a difference between the level I'm at and where this guy is. They're looking fairly similar. The fights Jesus Ricky Perez is getting currently are guys fights to test prospects. You lose to him, it feels like JoJo is now entering a dangerous world of like, 
This week, former Olympian Javier Molina testing our guy, Kane Sandoval. Feels like that's where JoJo's career is going. And then he gave a rather weird interview after the fight, which was kind of strange, where it was like he just re-signed with Golden Boy, but then he was like, I'm going to wait out my contract. If And it, the mental headspace after the fight, the words he was saying, I didn't hear accountability, and you know that's big with me. But it also felt very conspiratorial. Just drooled on myself. That's so awesome. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Just drooled like a put dog. Put that on the blooper reel. Yeah, put that on the blooper reel. That's going to go on the feed. That's going to go on the shorts. But um, I guess what when you, hear, when you see a performance that you don't see as a fighter's best, and then you see an interview where you don't hear them acknowledging that there's anything wrong with that performance – that's when I start to get worried. And then you look at the corner and it's his dad, a great cut man in Mike Rodriguez, but, and some other guy, I'm not seeing those guys that I used to see Ben Lira, um, Joel Diaz. There's a lot of, there's a lot of cautionary to this. And it, to me, it's just sad because I just don't know if Jojo can write the ship anymore. Well, and I think, and I, listen, this is not something I want to go out of my way to talk about, but they talked about it on the broadcast so much. Like they said that he was 70 days sober. So I don't know where he was at in his life 70 days ago, but that would mean that in 70 days, he would have both stopped drinking and had a training camp, but it's not a sustained, um, sustained conditioning he doesn't it, it, it doesn't appear that he's a guy who's a full-time fighter full-time um and the other thing too is he's not a guy who's gotten beat up in his career so it can't be punishment right because we haven't seen him really get like beat down in any of his fights he's always been competitive he's always been right there so it it just looks like it's a product of his lifestyle It's, I, I want to just say one thing because this is about addiction, right? And we're going to go a different way. And we talked on Thursday. And again, like I, and I'm going to let you continue. But like I said, that's not something that I like want to go out of my way to talk about somebody's struggles. But if they're going to put it on the broadcast out to the public, like that that's a narrative of the fight that, you know, like it has to be brought up. Well, I, I think that I have great sympathy for people that struggle with that because depression is real, right? It's like aging is real. Depression is real. And I've felt firsthand the effects of that stuff, not directly with me, although maybe, I don't know, never, but like um, I've had family members and I've felt the, the task of it. But what I was telling you is when we hear like someone's clean and sober, it's never, we never hear it. We always hear like, Oh man, they've got their life together. They're sober. But for me, I always think of the fear of one, the number one, which is starting all over, knowing that 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 there's something in the world that that soothes the struggles. And I think that that's the untold story of any fighter that battles addiction is that there's something out there that can soothe the pain as opposed to going through the pain. It's like, how does your body heal when you never feel the pain? And that's the part of the story we never talk about is how hard it is to keep that number going up as opposed to restarting and then having to feel shame and depression that you fell off the wagon. And that's my fear with any fighter that battles addiction. And then from his perspective, the getting the staying on the wagon is like, what is the, the wagon to stay on when you've lost this many fights? in recent times, you know, consecutively, you know, it's like, um, I do feel for him, you know, I do feel for him. Yeah. It's, it's a sad story. Let's go to a happier story. Um, Adrian Curell and Nanta Shinga, in my opinion, this is the best fight of the year. Uh, Colin Nathan, probably front runner for coach of the year, coached another fantastic fight. The trainer and Nanta Shinga, Crazy how the first two fights of January and February are probably going to be the best fights are going to be light flyweight fights, which is the most pretentious thing, but it's true. Fantastic fight. You didn't see it live. I made you go back and watch a highlight video of it. 
Um, Gabe Rosado with fantastic commentary. I think Gabe Rosado sneaky really good at best, it. one of the best commentators. I, he had a, a statement that I think was so telling of why he was a great fighter when he said, this guy's talking to the referee. That means he doesn't like it. And it's just those little astute real-time observations that I think brought me in. This fight, to me, what makes it so special is it sets the stage for a trilogy in South Africa because he, uh, Nata Shingo was knocked out in the first fight. Curiel was knocked out in the second fight. Inevitably, it would be great if they could do a trilogy down the road because these two fighters are putting together some really memorable fights. This fight was a show-stealer, action-packed, it sadly happened on a fairly irrelevant Mexican zone card that was buried behind two other easily accessible cards. But what were your thoughts on this uh, tremendous fight? Well, it was it was one of those kind of unhinged type of fights, right? Um, a similar kind of deal as Neri and Hovanesian, like those those fight of the year fight candidate type fights that are just a little unhinged. Um, and I always find it that much more impressive when it's a, in a rematch. You know, similar to Eubank getting stopped by Liam Smith and then coming back and completely dominating Liam Smith. Not that Nantashingo was dominant in this fight, but when you have to overcome not just the fight itself, but the fight prior to it where, you know, it wasn't your night. Those are incredibly impressive performances for me. Um, and I also want to add, bro, I think that uh, Gabe and Corey are becoming one of my personal favorite kind of broadcast duos at the moment. Well, and I think you hit it on the head. They really respect the sport. And this is a yeah. fight that needed people that respected the sport to tell the story of the sport because it's, it's a light flyweight bout that should be treated like a heavyweight title fight. And you never got the sense of, Hey, there might only be 5,000 casual fans tuning into this one live this this was treated as this might be Morales Barrera. And I think that that added some level of expertise to it because growing up, you know, watching some of Chocolatito's fights, if they do have English broadcast, it, you know, they were very kind of like, okay, we are the English broadcast team. We're going to try to get you into the fight. But, you know, we're some guys sitting on some lavalier mics sitting, sitting in a cool spot. I think what also it made me feel good that the lower weight classes, the guys like Chocolatito, the guys like Michael Carbajal, the guys like Brian Valoria, the guys like Finito Lopez, all the hard work that they did, it was it wasn't for nothing because guys like Ken Shiro, guys like Nantashinga are getting treated like valid professional fighters. And it's not a novelty that they're these small guys. They're being treated like champions. And I thought that was pretty cool. That was pretty fucking cool. And I they fought like champions. I mean, I, I didn't even really know what weight class they were in when I watched the the highlight and made no assumptions about their size. And I, it was an incredible fight. And to me, right now, Nantashinga has had the performance of the fight of the month. He's in the fight of the month. And I think he's the fighter of the month. I think he's won the month because he's coming off a knockout loss to make an adjustment where he wanted to fight in the first fight, he got knocked out because he was staying at range to make the commitment to, to get closer to the fighter. I mean, that's very brave, you know, to well, like, not that much time between the two fights, not much at all. What was it? November to February. So it's yeah. like, you're going right back in and to win via knockout. It's like, if this was in any other division with bigger names, this would be a huge story in the sport, but sadly it doesn't get it. But to me, Natashinga is the story of February. I agree. It was a, it was really, uh, it was, it was a, like a dazzling performance, a dazzling fight. Let's get into now Edgar Berlanga. He's coming back against Patty, Patty McCroy. Uh, what are your initial thoughts on? That? Um, I, I, I wish I knew more about McCrory going in, and I, I don't want to discredit him as a fighter. It's just I think we're at a point with Berlanga where, you know, after the Quigley fight, Eddie Hearn spent a lot of time talking about the potential for Berlanga and Munguia. So I think those are the kinds of fights that I, we have been anticipating that we're going to see him in. And so to see him in 
at this level again and again. I don't really know what this level is because I don't know enough about McCrory, but I think just the expectation was going to be that Berlanga would start competing with uh, some more well-known names. Well, I mean, I think that as this fight week gets going, it'll be a more exciting fight. I think there's exciting elements to the fight. I think that Berlanga, he worked with Victor Conti. Now he's working with Memo Heredia. Those two don't like each other. That's an interesting subplot. It's his second fight with Matchroom Boxing and Eddie Hearn. Uh, he's working with his original coach, Mark Ferret. Um, there, there's interesting elements, and I think that there's a hope that Berlanga, what is he on his fifth straight decision win after 16 straight knockouts? So I think there's this hope, like, let's get a knockout and let's go into a big fight, right? I thought, like, okay, McCroy, mid-30s, there has to be a reason why they're picking him. You know me, numbers guy at times, right? I look at the betting line, McCroy is only a plus 300 underdog. That's a lot closer than I thought. So the odds makers are seeing this as a very competitive fight. I think Berlanga's minus 450 currently. That seems a lot closer. I was thinking this would be minus 10,000 plus 800. So there's something stylistically about McCroy that the odds makers are tentative about setting big lines. Hey, and I don't know how much of him that you've seen, but I think that there's there's good reason for that, right? Because when we've seen Berlanga take these couple of step-up fights, be it Steve Rolls, who is a really good fighter, right? It be it Jason Quigley, who is also a really good fighter. But if Berlanga is going to become the superstar that I think there's a certain expectation that he will, I think people are thinking that those fights are going to be a little bit easier than they've been, than they wound up playing out. Um so I think that that's starting to reflect in how people, you know, bet with their money, even though I have no idea what any of those numbers mean. Um, I, I think it's a it's a good matchup. You know, I, McCrory is an un, unbeaten guy. You know, he's a pretty big guy. I just don't know enough about him. And I, I, again, like I said, I think the expectation is is that Berlanga will start being in bigger, more significant fights. And that's just not what's happening. Well, I think it's also early in his matchroom development. This is his second fight with matchroom. I think the the hope is that this fight leads to the significant fight. I think also, if you know anything about boxing, there's there's a belief that there's some reason they picked McCroy. Like there is a stylistic element to it. My guess would be that the belief is he's not a huge puncher and maybe a little bit more towards an amateur style fighter. That's just half-baked research, you know, because Berlanga, good puncher. But I think it's also a real main event. I think this is the type of fight where, okay, we could look at certain things, et cetera, et cetera. But I think on any given night, McCroy is the type of guy that could upset the apple card. Break him down for me. You know, break him down for someone that's not really familiar with him. Like, what 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 kind of challenge is he going to present to Edgar? You had to do that to me right when I had to pull up my notes. So, I mean, I think the big thing is you're looking at a guy who presents the same size as Berlanga. He's about 6'1". How, let me see how big Berlanga is. I think, I think Berlanga six, so you're looking at, they're both 6'1". Berlanga has a 73-inch reach. His reach isn't listed. Older guy, 35 years old. He's mostly fought in the UK, mostly fought in Belfast. And he's 18-0, nine knockouts. So, I mean, that's a decent ratio, but he's mostly fought European. Solid amateur career, relatively untested. But in his arguably his biggest fight, he knocked down his opponent that was the most accomplished opponent of his career. That's his last fight. I think to me, what I'm looking at is a form of an amateur pedigree, confidence of an undefeated fighter, having some probably high profile fighters in his corner. I'm going to make an assumption that he maybe knows Jason Quigley, who just recently fought Berlanga. So maybe he's talked to some people who know what Berlanga was doing with Quigley. So he's coming in with a level of confidence based on that. It's, 
Berlanga's second Irish fighter in a row, which is kind of an interesting storyline. And I think that he's going to be playing with house money. He's an older guy who probably didn't expect an opportunity like this. And I think it's going to be like the Pete Dobson thing where Pete, people were expecting him just to go and take a nap and Pete fought back and won a lot of those later rounds. It's just going to come down to, and this is hard for the haters to hear, but Berlanga, there's a level of star power. There's a level of physical talent. There's a level of athleticism that some guys just are not going to be able to match. Right. And it's going to be how, how close is that for McCroy? Can McCroy with technique, with distance, can he counteract some of the offensive gifts that Berlanga has? And I think my other story of the fight is, can Berlanga get his confidence back? Because I don't think that Berlanga's fighting much different than he did when he was getting the first round knockouts. I just think that when he punches people, he doesn't believe they're going to go down anymore. And that's what's affecting some of these performances. So for McCroy, can he take Berlanga to that place where Berlanga starts to doubt himself? where he bit Angulo, where he had that fight. So I think that there is a real possibility with McCroy. I think the most dangerous thing about him is the height, but also the fact that he's a guy who is 35 years old, probably knows who he is as a person. I'm not sure Berlanga knows who he wants to be for the rest of his life. And he has to weaponize that. He has to put Berlanga in a spot where he has to make decisions about oh my God, this fight isn't playing out the way I want it to be. That's his path to victory. The worst scenario for him would be to get caught with a shot and dropped and Berlanga goes, okay, I'm back. So that's how I see the fight playing out in my little head. Well, and I think one thing to add to that is that I, in seeing him fight Quigley, right? Like he dropped him a couple of times. I think that, you know, there's have been fights where we've seen the power, even if there has, it hasn't resulted in knockouts. I just get the sense that early in his career, you know, when you fight at a certain level, there's going to be a couple of those moments where there's gimmies. And when you present Berlanga with a gimme, he's going to take it and he's going to lay out or he's, he's going to hit you hard enough where it starts that process. And I think that as he's moved up to guys like Steve Rolls and Coceres and Jason Quigley, those guys are not giving him the same number of gimmies and, in fact, have been in at the at, at the highest level already multiple times, so there's nothing that he's bringing that they're intimidated by or concerned about, and I just don't think that – I don't know if it's a, a belief in the individual punches. I just don't think he's quite learned how to set that up um, at this level. Yeah, I mean, it's just he's got a really good coach. So his coach is really good. Yep. He works with Najee Lopez. He's getting good sparring. It's just, you know, whether people want to believe it or not, Berlanga is a star. He's really interesting. And it's just about his performances have to match the interest people have in him as a fighter. Yep. And and this should be an opportunity for him to have a Sergio Martinez-like performance. Fight a guy who's well accomplished. Uh, very much this <laughs> – Here's a funny comparison, but this is very much like an Amanda Serrano move fighting as a fighter. We're not aware of, but they're undefeated, well-accomplished, probably better than we expect. You could get yourself in a tough fight, but to separate and show that you're a contender. I think the other thing with Berlanga is he's very young and a lot is being asked of a young fighter that we don't ask of other fighters, but so is the interest. Like when the interest follows you, the expectation is far greater. So I think that this fight, rightly or wrongly, might start to define where Berlanga is as a fighter. Yeah. And I, and, and I, I think that, it you know, I'm always excited to see him fight. I think the last observation I have about this fight is that it's not in New York. And I think that I don't know if that's a statement of, of anything, but I think that um, – it might actually be good for him to not be on home court for once in these, in these higher pressure situations. The undercard um, I'll read it off to you. It's not one of the stronger undercards. There's a really banger fight. Um, we got a return of Andy Cruz against a fighter. I don't know. Um, Shekram guy, guy Sof is taking on Pablo. Gizoff is taking on Pablo Cesar Cano for the WBA right, right. welterweight eliminator. That's a banger. And Antonio yeah. Vargas is taking on Jonathan Rodriguez for the WBA bantamweight eliminator. 
those are very good fights, but it also screams like these are guys with limited fan bases and we just needed to find a card that they'd fight on. Um, what are your thoughts on this undercard? Well, but I think that Giasov and, and Kano fight is like a legitimate matchup, right? I mean, that's a really good fight. I've seen Giasov a couple of times, and I think, like you said, doesn't have a great following. But, man, the performances that I've seen of him, I've been incredibly impressed with his skill set. So, And with Kano, you know he's always going to bring it. There's always the chance that he could just knock you the fuck out if you're more talented. So that's a, that's a really fun one. I think with Andy Cruz, like, you know, you just want to keep a guy like that busy. Um, I don't see any reason for him to sit around waiting for a world-class fight. I don't think that anybody is going to go out of their way to get in the ring with him. So just find the most credible guy that you can get to show up on the night. Okay, moving over. we got Alexandro Santiago taking on Junto Nakatani. This will be Nakatani. Is Nakatani fighting for his third division world title in this fight? I believe he had just won the super flyweight. He was a flyweight world champion. Now he's moving up and fighting one of the most accomplished bantamweights. Um, Santiago just beat Nonito Donaire. Really, really good fight. Possibly could be the fight of the month, could be the performance of the month. Juto Nakatani, the legend Jack Kelly, believes is pound-for-pound fighter already. Um, thoughts on this? Because this is going to happen at like 3 in the morning for me. I just think it's pretty wild that he's already moving up to bantamweight. Just the, the rate at which he's moving up weight classes. It was only, what, like a year ago that he was fighting at 112? And he always looked massive at those weights. So I, I think that he's going to be successful as he moves up. I just think he's doing it really fast. Which is impressive. It's not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's impressive. I mean, let me ask you the next question. Do you think he's chasing in a way? I, I think it's very possible. And I think that that would be probably like the, the biggest fight in the history of Japan and one of the biggest fights in the history of the lower weight classes. Do you see anything that Santiago does that could deeply trouble um, Nakatani? Because Nakatani is going to be the experience. I just think the experience of being in with a guy like Nonito, who's just so much bigger and hits so hard, it's like, is is what Nakatani does going to bother Santiago physically? Is it going to make him un- is, is he going to make him uncomfortable in the same way as he was able to make guys comfortable at one twelve and at one fifteen, where? He was just again so much bigger. Yeah, um, he's always been a featherweight looking motherfucker down at one twelve. You know what I mean? What I think that what people aren't thinking about with Santiago is he's fought both German and Canajas to a draw, and who's on the co-main of this card, and he beat Nonito Donaire. And yet, most people are unaware of him and looking at him as like a a stepping stone champion as opposed to a legitimate champion. And I think that's kind of interesting as well this is this is definitely trial by fire for nakatani and then i'm kind of curious because in a way is said that he's staying at 122 is he going to jump to 122 or is he going to try to unify the belts at bantamweight because this just seems like there's a lot of bantamweight fights on this card i think he's moving up fast enough that it just only seems logical that he would move up to fight in a way as soon as possible. But I can't, you know, I can't speak to that personally. I just think that that looks like what is happening. Be a huge fight. There's enough big fights at 115, right? Where if he wanted to move up and wait and really build up to a fight with Bam or, you know what I mean? Like there are fights for him at 115. So that's why I just think that he's, you know, he, he's on a mission to, to build himself up to that size. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. He's very, very good. Um, Co-main, Feature Inoue's brother, who I can never say his name, is taking on Jerwin and Kanahas. Um, sneaky fight. I really like Jerwin in this fight. Do you have any thoughts on this? I gotta see. It's it's um it's Takeshi Inoue, I think, right? A Takuma Inoue. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy's fun. Um, I I like all his brothers. They're all very good fighters. They just don't quite have the same level of explosiveness that that he has. Um, you know. And Cajas has had some tough performances with uh, with Fernando um, Fernando Martinez. You know, I know he won his last fight, but those performances, I just thought he looked a little bit flat. And some of that, you have to give credit to Martinez. Um, but th- it's a great matchup, and I think um, it, it'll kind of give us an indicator of you know what point in Cajas 
is in his career. Yeah, I I hear you. Um, just final stuff for the hardcore fight fan. This just outro. We got my guy Quentin Randall fighting Gore Yur Tisanian. Kane Sandoval versus Javier Molina. Your guy, Dimitri Salida, has a great fight between Arl Holmes Jr. versus Marlon Harrington. And Ollie can't pronounce his name against Britain Norwood. Um, some sneaky good hardcore fights for the hardcore fight fam. What do you think of those? Uh, hell of a card. A lot of names there that I don't know. But as always, looking forward to seeing it and learning. What do you got going this week, Dakota? What do I got going this week? Um, I don't know that I got anything going this week as far as boxing. We just had done with fight week, booking a couple of slip and weaves that we're going to get out there as soon as possible. Um, just put out an episode with Luke Ayana Chili, who's getting ready to fight uh, Nico Ali Walsh on March 2nd. I think that that's a really fun, interesting fight. I think it's a, a cool buildup and narrative, um, especially knowing Luke, having been able to commentate his pro debut and just kind of watch his progression from uh, a local favorite club fighter to to now fighting on ESPN in a fight where I think he legitimately has a chance to win. Okay, perfect. Well, we will be back at some point on Sunday or Monday next week. I'm going to be on the road until you see me, Dakota. So I'm still on the road next week. So on the road, on the road, on the road. Love doing this show. Love everybody. Um, we'll see you next week.